Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. We all have our favorite writers and those books we just can't seem to put down, and with this podcast, we will enter the mind of a writer to see just how those stories get made. Tune in every week to hear conversations with some of the most interesting and influential writers today about craft, process, the life of the writer, and so much more. Our unique programming celebrates genres and writers from a wide range of backgrounds. In this podcast, you'll hear from authors who just released their first book, as well as seasoned veterans who have won multiple prestigious awards, and everyone in between. Some of these programs were previously recorded at the museum, and some were recorded more recently during our virtual program series. But either way, please enjoy. You can also tune into our upcoming live programs and chat with writers directly. Check out our upcoming events calendar by visiting our website at AmericanWritersMuseum.org. We are thrilled and honored to launch the American Writers Museum podcast with this discussion between writers Sandra Cisneros and Fernando A. Flores, who visited the AWM in May of 2019. Flores had just published his latest novel, Tears of the Truffle Pig, and Cisneros joined him in conversation for this event to discuss the book, their writing processes, and their experiences growing up in Mexican-American households. Cisneros is the author of many books, most notably The House on Mango Street. She is also a MacArthur Fellow and was awarded the National Medal of the Arts by President Obama in 2016. We hope you enjoy Entering the Mind of a Writer. Bienvenido a ambos y gracias por estar aquí. Welcome to you both and thank you for being here. Bienvenidos. I'm so happy to be back in my hometown. It's always difficult for me to uh, come to Chicago because I have more people I know and family to visit with, and it's rare that I have an opportunity to come to a museum. So this is a special uh, gift for us to be here together and um, and the two-year birthday and to uh, introduce a young writer that we introduced in uh, five years ago, was five, that years, yeah, five, five years, yeah. Five years ago, Alfredo Cisneros yeah. Foundation yeah. Award, which, by the way, I think you were the last year that we gave yeah, grants. definitely, yeah. Right? It I think was. it was, it was the last, very last year. year. And I have to tell you, Fernando, I feel um, like a grandma today oh, in a wonderful you. way because you're like my child. Oh, and, I'm you know, And then this is your baby, so I'm the grandma of oh, this book. Yeah, yeah, you totally are, yeah. And you know, I have to tell you, when I, uh, I have to tell you the history of the Alfredo Cisneros del Moral Foundation. Uh, my father uh, was an upholsterer. He was an immigrant who came to this country by buying the birth certificate of a nefarious San Antonio character who uh, will remain nameless, but you can watch it and Finding Our Roots, if you like. And my father bought this birth certificate from this nefarious character in 1942, the year when there were the most deaths in World War II. So my father crossed over. He was running away from home. Uh, my grandfather was a military man, and my father uh, always knew he would have had a better life if he had stayed in Mexico. So he wasn't an economic refugee. He was uh, a refugee uh, from his father, running ex an exile from a military father. And uh, he crossed over in El Paso. No, I'm sorry, Laredo bought false papers from someone from San Antonio and had the ill luck of being drafted under the false identity. And for some reason, which I don't know why, he served. And that's how he became a U.S. citizen. Uh, eventually, halfway through his uh, 
period of uh, service, uh, he identified himself as the real Alfredo Cisneros. But he regretted that he left behind the opportunity to study at the UNAM and have a middle-class life. He worked very hard, raised seven children with his working with his hands, and always uh, pushed us to go to school so we would use this and not this. Uh, I created the Alfredo Cisneros Foundation grant because I received so much help when I was a young writer from my father, my mother, and from the Chicago Arts Council, Illinois Arts Council, National Endowment for the Arts. All these grants helped me one after the other to get to my next stage in my life. And my father used to say, Sandra, cuide tu dinero, you know, save your money. And, uh, but yet he was always an example of generosity of giving money away, of supporting us and taking care of us, being there for us all the time. And so it gave me a lot of pleasure once he was gone to sign checks that said Alfredo Cisneros del Moral Foundation to help writers like you. And I know that he's here tonight in the spirit world. He's so proud of both of us tonight. And I'm happy that you're here with the last recipient of that award. Oh, thank you, Sandra. I'm honored. I'm, yeah. I was honored to receive it, really. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's the only uh, American award uh, named after an upholster, as far as I know. Uh, so, do you want to talk a little bit about that award and what it did to your life? Definitely, definitely. You know, uh, when that book, I mean, uh, in, uh, in around April, around a, like five years ago, yeah, this guy running a like a literary Ponzi scheme out of his apartment here in Chicago, actually. <laughs> put out uh, the first volume of Death to the Bullshit Artist of South Texas, Volume 1. He put out 200 little hardback copies of the first seven stories here. And uh, I was lucky enough, even though only 200 were made, uh, they were very well circulated. And a couple of people who uh, came across it, uh, Ben Olguin, who is a professor? Was a professor at UT in UTSA, I believe, and University Greg of Texas, Barrios, San Antonio. People in San Antonio. here in Illinois don't in San Antonio, know about UTSA. Yeah, in San Antonio, <laughs> Texas. yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, the great Greg Barrios, they both uh, critic Chicano, uh, great Chicano arts critic at large. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They both nominated me for the the Cinero Moral Prize, and. I was lucky enough to to win the award, and uh, at the time... How much money did we give you? I'm sorry? How much money did you win? I got $10,000. Yeah, which is incredible. <laughs> and this is the incredible part, that within 10 days, all these crazy things happened. I won the Cisnero del Morado Award. I was laid off from my job. I was a barista for nine years in Austin. I was evicted, <laughs> and... Uh, I got a job working at a bookstore only two days a week. Oh. So at this time, I had just, I just I gotten the money. All these crazy things happened. And at that time, I, I was in the crossroads. And I, was, and I thought to myself, am I going to revise all these old manuscripts that I had? Or am I going to try to do something new? And I was so, so afraid that I decided, well, I'm going to try something new. Because I don't know if I'm ever going to get this opportunity again. So for the next three months, I proceeded to, on my typewriter, try to write a novel. And uh, I succeeded. And it ended up being the first draft of Tears of the Truffle Pig. Here. Yeah. Which, did you read from that manuscript when I heard you, when you won the award? Or did, were you reading from I this want, one? Yeah, I read you the read last short. Well, yeah, totally. See, I the, the blurb on this book uh, is actually 
about this book. So oh. now when people read, when I see this, I said it's funny, futuristic, phenomenal. This is not funny. It's futuristic and phenomenal, but this is the funny one. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, then yeah. I thought, uh-oh, they put that blurb on this book. Oh, people okay, are that's think I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> how, how interesting. <laughs> how do we fix that? So, you know, that, people are going to think I, I didn't read the book, but, you know, I, I, I wrote the blurb on this Oh, that's one. interesting. I, didn't, I had no idea. Yeah. I wonder how that happened. Yeah, then I, when I'm reading it, it's so, well, we'll talk about this book. But one of the things is you're on a book tour now, which I have to tell you, back in the old days, book tours were very common. You know, you would get big bouquets of flowers, nice hotels, nice meals, and you would get a tour. But not anymore. <laughs> now, the industry doesn't have that kind of money, so if they invest it all in you, it's pretty amazing. That means they believe in you. But there's very few writers that go on tours. Like back in the old days, especially when I was a small press uh, writer, they would send you like to the Houston Mall, and you would perform after the mariachis. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's very hard to follow mariachis. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't, uh, there's low points that people have on book tours. You haven't been on a book tour long enough to know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. So I, I want to give you, you some advice. Please, yes. I, I, I live for, okay. for listening to this. And this is for you. Who are, how many people are writers out there? Can I have a, like a show of hands? Wow. Okay, great. So when you uh, publish, uh, one of the things that's very important, you know, they, they take your photograph, hold your book up next to your head. This way they have to show the book when they show the photo. And you okay? Do this. Or go. Or. As many different ways as you can do it. Okay? Totally, totally. And then say, I gotta go. And they have to use that photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. The other thing, when you uh, have someone that says, so what's your book about? Obviously they haven't read your book. Yeah. And that's you can use to your advantage. So instead of taking their questions, you create the topics and you have sound bites all prepared ahead of time. Well, this is a futuristic book and it's pretty phenomenal because I wrote it five years ago, but actually what I wrote about is happening now. <laughs> you see, you take the sound bites, you grab it and you run with it because otherwise they'll want to talk about like, so Fernando, is it true you're from South Texas? You know, just silly stuff, which we can't afford to to talk about nonsense because we're living in a time of crisis for people who are named Cisneros and Flores and who live on the border or who look like us. Definitely. It's important that you take over the interview. Yeah. Especially, like you, know, you say, I only have 15 minutes. and talk about what you want in 15 minutes. I got to go. Yeah, walking and talking. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, another thing that I think is very important that I learned from... Uh, my teachers here, Studs Terkel and uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, that you treat your audience when they come and get their book signed, they really want to talk to you. So you use that time as if they're the famous person and you are their fan. Yes. And Miss Brooks taught me that. She would be so wonderful in yeah. how she treated every single person and looked them in the eye. And so then you learn to do a signature that isn't the one you put on the check. And you go, yeah, and are you a writer too? Yeah, okay, that's great. Who do you want this for? So you put your name first, and then you do theirs. And honor them. And those are my great teachers, Eduardo Galliano, Studs Terkel, and Gwendolyn Brooks.
That's that's great. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have some questions I want to ask you, but you can ask me one while I'm looking to, for the ones to yeah, ask Yeah, I you. do have a question for you, yeah. actually, Sandra. Like, uh, you know, people, I guess people always ask me, I haven't lived in South Texas in 15 years almost, and in a way people still associate me as a South Texas writer. They ask me if I'm a South Texas writer. And I know you moved around a lot, and you've written a lot of your work in different cities. And I wonder if you associate any of your books like, geographically, like... This is the book I read in Chicago. This is my San Antonio book. Yeah. This is my... Yeah. Well, you know, um, House on Mongo Street never mentions in the entire book Chicago, except for one time when the girls are jumping rope and they're singing uh, uh, one of those girls' rhymes, dumping rhymes, you know. Engine, engine number nine, running down Chicago line. That's the only time. I didn't mention any... Uh, landmark places because I wanted everybody who read the book whether they lived in uh, the valley, in South Valley of Texas or in Florida or in Washington State to feel like that was their address, that was their town. So, but, but it was written in Chicago. Uh, some of it was written in Iowa City when I was a graduate student and a lot of it was written on, uh, in the old Bucktown neighborhood when I lived on Polina uh, off of Armitage and uh, some of it is plucked from my students' lives in Pilsen, uh, but it's my Chicago book. Yeah. And then uh, I, I moved to San Antonio the year you were born. Yeah. It was the year House on Mango Street that, was born. 1982. 1982. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So, yeah. So I, I moved, and the book came out at that time. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So the, a, a Woman Hauling Creek. Yeah. Uh, Do you consider Texas. that your San Antonio book? That's my Texas book. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, my San yeah. Antonio book. And Caramelo is Chicago, Texas, and Mexico. Totally, totally, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that makes sense, yeah. Totally. And uh, Por Amor, my little story, it's my Mexico story. That's, yeah, t- yeah. T- definitely, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have some questions for you. Uh, one is, I lived in um, Sarajevo. I don't know if you know that, for, uh, before the war, and I go back to uh, former Yugoslavia in the state of Bosnia, Herzegovina. And uh, you mentioned uh, the cigarette, Herzegovina, Flor, Herzegovina Flor, in the first page. And I thought, how the hell does he know this? Um, why, do you, why that little detail in your book? That's interesting. Uh, you know, I read about Herzegovina Flor cigarettes. I think I like to put a lot of... Uh, international things in all my stories. I have this theory about South Texas and the border. I think that and the border is a very strange place. I think that it, all genres and the entire world somehow ends up at the border, you know. So uh, the idea of having this, my, my main character smoking these cigarettes that were these Russian cigarettes was uh, an important detail for me. Uh, sometimes when you're in South Texas and you can't when you live in a place and you can't really escape, you find little ways to mentally leave. And, and that's one of those subtle ways you smoke, you know, foreign cigarettes, you know. And also at the time, uh, I read this article about Stalin's daughter and Stalin. And in, 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 in the article, it mentioned Stalin, how he liked to smoke these Herzegovina flor cigarettes. Yeah, but Herzegovina is in, in Bosnia. And it's Javanese tobacco. Yeah. So I wondered if it came from uh, former Yugoslavia and went to Russia or the other way around. I was just wondering. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. No. It just, but the, that I guess that detail, the, the, this, 
you know, the, the idea of somebody smoking a cigarette and, like you say, it comes from Java and all these things. I like these, how these things in life weave and end up in South Texas. But don't you think that it happens especially, it could happen in Chicago if you grow up in a very poor neighborhood or someplace where you wish you could get out of, like I did, uh, that the quickest uh, airline ticket, the cheapest one is a book. Definitely, definitely. Right? Yeah, definitely. So... To me, yeah, and that was like really important. Emily Dickinson said, "The greatest forget is a book." Yeah, you know, that's the way you kind of when you gotta get out of somewhere. We should explain to the audience what uh, the Texas Valley is, where it is, and what it is. Definitely, definitely. I take it for granted that I, I uh, somehow I, I think that everybody knows the valley, but the valley is like the southernmost tip in Texas. The last. Battle of Civil War was fought in South Texas in Brownsville. Not a lot of people know that. And uh, it's a very strange place because it's almost like in the middle of the desert because it's right on the border. Mexico's on the other side. And San Antonio's four, four hours away. And between the South Texas and San Antonio, it's like nothing. Just like uh, a strange Texas desert, you know. Mesquite, uh, you know, just uh, barren land everywhere. So living in South Texas, you're kind of like isolated. You have, the, you have uh, the border, you have Mexico over here, you have this long stretch of land before you reach the next big city, San Antonio. So you're kind of isolated. Not a lot of bands come through. You don't get a lot of culture in South Texas. You're very isolated. So growing up down there, you hold on to these little things, whether in culture and literature and art, and you just hold on to them for dear life, and you somehow... These things end up shaping you as you grow as you grow up down there in an isolated yeah, it, area. Yeah, it's a very economically depressed part of the world. Yes, it and, is. And uh, you know, I knew about it because I lived with a man from Raymondville, which is a little dusty town. Of Definitely, nothing. there's yeah, nothing, nothing there. Like a little convenience store. Yeah, it looks like the last picture show, but it's like yeah. the last picture show, show in the universe. You know, yeah. it's like Definitely. really nothing there. It's like the poorest uh, part of texas isn't it definitely so you're writing about like in your first book uh, like punk bands yeah 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 definitely to me it was really important like uh when during writing both these books i had to really ask myself what am i why am i writing a book why am i doing this why am i adding another book to the cultural canon or trying to add something to the conversation. So I had to really see and really try to view both American literature and Mexican-American literature and see what wasn't represented that I could do something with. And to me, like, I started, you know, I grew up in South Texas with a bunch of band influences, you know, underground bands that just, you know, sprout. They have a life of two years and then disappear. And there's this very rich culture of bands that form and just vanish in time. So to me, it was very important to try to capture some of this subculture that I felt was unrepresented in the cultural conversation and, and in literature, more, uh, more importantly for me, because I felt it was really important to, uh, to try and tell some, uh, hold on to some of those stories and try to perpetuate them somehow. Well, see, your writing's very Baroque, and I think that that's something that's distinctive for writers that are uh, have a Latino or hyphenated identity, that we have to know all about English writers, and we have to know all about writers from the Americas, and we have to know all the writers that write in the peninsula in, of Spain. We have to, ha- And then we, uh, you and I have this uh, uh, 
affection for world literature. Yes. So we have to know everything. Yeah. And that shows in your writing. So can you share a little bit of your first book? Uh, yeah, Death, definitely. Death. definitely. I, like this title is so wonderful. Death to the Bullshit Artists of South Texas. Yeah. And it's more of a facetious title. When I first started writing these stories, I wrote them on a typewriter. And uh, every time I would finish a story, I would yell that out. Death to the Bullshit Artists of South Texas. <laughs> Just as a statement to myself, like I did it. You know? And after I wrote like three or four of them... To me, though, I, I realized that that's what it's got to be called. I got I have to call the story. And did, did all the first run of your two hundred? Uh, did they sell out? So they sold out within like eight months or something. And I told the publisher to not do any, not print any more. I was really uh, satisfied with there being only two hundred. Did of you them. pay for the printing, or did the? No, print? he did it or anything. We kind of had a falling out. He ended up owing me money, and I figured <laughs> out this is all a scam. Well, see, this is what happens. People don't realize, like when you publish, especially small presses like that, sometimes they pay you. Like when House of Manga Street came out, they paid me like in copies and five hundred dollars. Yeah. You wow. Know, that's when I was a small press. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't get anything at all from this guy. <laughs> So uh, I had no, this. No, no, no. I, a, a lie, Fernando. You've got a good story. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. The story is great, you know, and I want to see little in Morat Price. So I was like, who cares? I'm glad that he, it, it happened you know, the way my, it did. My first book was a chapbook that Lorna D. Cervantes, the poet, and Gary Soto published. Uh, Gary put the money, and Lorna D. had Mango Press. And they, it was a little staple book called Bad Boys that uh, published like 500 copies. They paid me in 100 copies, and I sold them for a dollar. And now they sell for over $1,000 on eBay. Wow. So like 2000 now, Raul? Oh, Raul, wow. I didn't see you. There's the writer Raul Nino and Molly, my friends right here in the front. I didn't even see you. Otherwise, I would have introduced you. 2000 You're a librarian, so you know those things. Wow. Do you still have a copy? Oh, good for you. Hang wow. on to it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so if you know those 200 copies are going to be collector's items. Yeah. That's why you should always support, like, you know, when poets carrying around a big, they carry a big bag and say, you want to buy my book? Buy it. <laughs> yeah, okay, definitely. Okay, well, read for us. So, uh, a little excerpt. You know, so the way I approach these stories, they were very intuitive. Like, I really wanted each story to be different. And this particular story is called The Performances of Liliana Krause. And I wrote this story in around September of... 2011. I wrote the introduction to the story, and it was before Leonora, the, the artist Leonora Carrington, who lived in Mexico City, uh, passed away. And I had a dream with Leonora Carrington after not thinking about her for a long time. Somehow I had this dream. I woke up and I was sweating, and I wrote this introduction. I didn't know what the story was going to be, but I knew that uh, Leonora Carrington had something to do with it. So this is the beginning of the story called The Performances of Liliana Krause. The story Liliana Krause pieced together and would come to believe regarding her birth in Mexico City was this. Leonora Carrington in Antwerp had a dream. A dream more like a beam of light cascading through his chakras. One she'd experienced only twice before, as a girl when she attended the Academy of Art and when she was in love in Paris during the Nazi occupation of France. The trance this beam of light suspended her in was actually an avalanche. It carried visions of liquid fire, of shifting multicolored sands, and ribbons of flesh. She could see these ribbons like bloody, slippery cartilage along her body, like a liquid sensation making her shiver in what she felt was her holy ghost. 
the Holy Ghost that was everybody making up the world, the people she knew and the ones she'd never see, and their suffering, elegance, grace, and throbbing murder. Those people and things existed in the world of the senses because they existed within herself, and jolted in that auburn of rays like dry leaves falling around her body, building a mountain of sensations around her, she felt what she later referred to as her penultimate sensation, that liquid healing light which makes us gasp at the beauty right before the necessary rapture. She realized the light was a soul trying to punch through to make itself aware that the fleshy ribbons were actually a singular light manifesting into this world as a person. She thought, if light is necessary in birth, and if birth eventually brings us death, and if murder exists hand in hand with virtue, and if life is necessary, beginnings are necessary, then so must be endings. Therefore, a rapture must be necessary. Okay, thank you. You know, people assume because you won the Alfredo Cisneros del Moral Award that I know you, but uh, you, t- until very recently, were calling me Señora Cisneros Thank in my you. emails because you just totally, didn't. Totally. I said, please don't call me that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> totally. Uh, but uh, how did you, first, how did you become a writer coming from, you know, there's one writer we all know from the Valley, Gloria Anzaldúa, yeah. and Gloria she had Zaldúa. to run away because she was a, a lesbian writer yes. in order to survive. That's a part of the world with gay and lesbian people get killed. Totally. So they have to go to the nearest big city, which is San Antonio, which is a gay mecca. Yes. But you're not a gay writer. Well, maybe you are. I don't know. I don't presume. Uh, But you're not. Uh, I just, so why did you leave the valley? How did you leave? How did you make your route to becoming a writer? Because I think we have to reinvent ourselves. Totally. You know, we have to find a way. You know, like I didn't have any role models when I was a young writer. I met Gwendolyn Brooks when I was already, you know, after I graduate school. But how do you know how to become a writer when you come from... uh, uh, neighborhood where there's no bookstores except yeah. Gigi's exotic books. Definitely, you know? yeah, yeah. I grew up yeah without a place. There was no bookstores growing up in South Texas ever. So how I would get books to me when I was growing up, right up until when I was like 22, I think literature to me was something of the past. To me, there were no writers like writing now. You know, at the time, so uh, I would go to uh, the our the the Mission Public Library, and they had a little tiny room, like a closet, where they sell books for a dollar that were damaged or something. So that's how I came across a lot of books. That's how that I came across... That was your first purchase of a book at the dollar? That was my first book purchase right Can there. Can I tell you about my first purchase? Yeah, that's how- I didn't know there were the people... I thought books were so valuable that they were issued by the church and state, that you couldn't actually own one. Because I didn't know people owned books. I only saw them in Chicago Public Library. But I remember uh, we would go to the Sears, uh, the, uh, the big Sears on Holman. Uh, it was like the, if those of you who remember Sears, I'm giving away my age. Uh, there was the big mail-order catalog uh, establishment on Holman. And they would have like the rejects or the damaged products in the basement. And like other people would, you know, on Friday night would go out to dinner. We would go to Sears. That was our big Friday night thing on payday. My mom would buy a box of popcorn and a little fistful of cashews, which she always hid in her underwear drawer, but we knew they were there, so we'd go in and steal some. 
and I was, was with my mother and father, and we would be digging in these bins in the bargain basement, damaged goods. And, you know, they would have these box sets of the classics. And there was one volume that was lost, and they were selling, and it was Alice in Wonderland. And it was 50 cents. It was red with a garish kind of popcorn oil yellow um, edging, pretending to be gold. And uh, I begged, 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 if I could please have that book. It was 50 cents, and it was the, my first book that I bought, but not the first book, of course, I read. And I remember I loved it so much, but one day I was trying to open a bottle of perfume, and I tugged, and it spilled all over the pages of Alice in Wonderland, which made all the pages wavy, but it smelled nice. It smelled pretty. <laughs> That's great. That's a great That's story. That's my story. That's awesome. It's great how you know you you know in these moments where you're able to find like a pearl in, in yes. that and how and when you don't have books in your house, yeah. You know, like you know, even now when people ask me to sign the book and like they crack it open, it's like no, <gasps> oh. and I, I I just like I feel like they cracked open my bones. They're so precious and. Wonderful. Do you feel like that? Yeah, definitely. I do. Yeah, you know, especially especially because you know they were so scarce growing up. You know, and uh, so how do you make your way from the dollar box yeah, at the Mission Library? Yeah. So my parents, my, my parents were born were from Mexico. Yeah. My, well, my dad was born in South Texas, and my mother was born in Mexico. They were both dropped out of high school. Neither of them were really readers. We uh, had a we, uh, I grew up in a Spanish-speaking household, you know. Uh, my parents and my whole entire family did everything they could so that I would not be artistically inclined. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I never had really any kind of support network with my family or even with my friends, really. So to me, writing was always something that I did privately. And it, when I was about 22 years old, my car broke down. I lost my job in South Texas. I had nothing. And somebody gave me a typewriter. And I knew somebody who lived in Austin. And to me, I was like, I got to get out of South Texas. I called this, my friend up. And, and within three days, I moved with like $20 in my pocket to Austin, Texas with a bag of my clothes in the typewriter. And I got a job washing dishes. And this is the summer of 2005. I got a job washing dishes, and, and I, that's what I would do. I'd wash dishes, and nobody would bother me. And I'd go home, and I'd read, and I'd write on the typewriter. And uh, every time, whenever they try to give me, like, a better position to raise, I'd say, no, I like, be, I like being here. Nobody bothers me. I can think about what I'm going to work on when I go home, you know. <laughs> you know, but that's writing short stories. But writing a novel is something else. It is, it is. It's like, I used to say, you know those paintings and those statues you see in Mexico of the souls in purgatory? They're like this, with like, you know, flames and chains. That's what writing a novel is like. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. And I would tell my other friends, rattle your chains so I know you're alive. Because, you know, it's like a voluntary, volunteering to go to jail. Yeah. You know, well, I'll just go to jail for 10 years. <laughs> See you later. You know, yeah. then you, when you get out, it's like, oh, my God, people are going to the movies. They're drinking wine. <laughs> oh, they are. People have lives. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you know the real writers, especially in San Miguel, Lucina as well, you know. There's a lot of faux writers in San Miguel, you know. But the real writers, when you say, like, hey, can we get together? Oh, I can't. I'm writing. <laughs> but maybe... Uh, next week after eight o'clock, you know, those are the real writers. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so uh, yeah, after that, you know, 
I just kept doing that for 10 years. Those are short stories, but how, years, the yeah. novel is a purgatory. It's yeah. a long commitment. This totally. is a very different book, The Cheers of the Truffle Pig, yeah. even though it says, you know, funny, I meant this one. How did you go from this to this? You know, I don't, I, to, to be honest, I have no idea. I never, you know, I read somewhere that somebody called it a speculative fiction book, and it is. I it's, mean, it's I, futuristic. It's but futuristic. When, you, when I heard you, you know, back then, it, was, it would have been futuristic. But now, it's the reality of what's happening yeah. in the world now. Yeah. Can Would you give a little synopsis for our totally. listeners? Yeah, definitely. So, oh yeah, Tears of the Truffle Pig is, uh, takes place like in an alternate South Texas with two border walls and a controversial third border wall about to be erected. And it takes place in a time uh, after its worldwide food shortage, kills off a lot of people, and inspires these scientists to create this thing called the filtering method, which is... Like out of troughs, they grow, they grow vegetables and fruit, and at a rapid rate, and eventually that evolves into growing farm farm animals to be able to feed people. And around this time, also drugs have become legalized, so all the syndicates that had made their money off of uh, drugs kind of hijack this technology to. Uh, bring back like extinct animals back to life and even though the, the animals are only uh, alive for a short amount of time like eight weeks they'll get what is valuable out of them and try to sell them in the underground market either to uh, have throw these uh, exotic kind of cra- crazy dinners where people pay a lot of money to eat these uh, these extinct animals prepared in uh, with top dollars chefs and stuff or to get their feathers and get anything valuable from them. And our main character is Esteban Bellacosa, whose brother is kidnapped by a headhunting syndicate. And the syndicates that really don't deal with this filtering technology, they uh, kidnap people and they shrink their heads and they sell them to collectors. And the darker your skin is, the more indigenous you are, the more your head is worth. And they have a way of dyeing your skin if you're not. And... So our main character is looking for his brother in the South Texas, and he kind of becomes manipulated by this investigative reporter who's writing an article about this underground dinner. So he kind of Esteban Bellacosa becomes manipulated to uh, go to one of these, attend one of these dinners, and from there, all these, all these things happen to him. Well, your writing is ultra baroque, and it's hard to read it quickly because you know even though I'm a speed reader I had to go back and reread your book for tonight because I felt like every time I would come to a simile your similes are so poetic and wonderful that I kept like stopping and saying oh my god does he write poetry the the cloudy sky grimaced like an old retiree counting change <laughs> MacArthur was foggy like it was inside of a glass bottle where somebody had discarded a cigarette, you know, things like that. And I, I would think, wow, that's good. Do you, do you write poetry? Uh, yeah, for the longest time. When I first got a typewriter, I had an electric typewriter. And uh, they only, I found out, I figured out that it only, they'd only write 15 pages and before it ran out of ink cartridge. So I'd get so afraid to write fiction that I'd just, I'd write poetry for a long time because it'll last, the ink would last longer. So... <laughs> Between 2005 and 2010, whenever I was like 
I, I took breaks writing stories exclusively because of that. Because, uh, I mean, I couldn't... Uh, the ink cartridges were kind of pricey at the time. <laughs> well, that's funny because there's going to be a display of typewriters, I understand, very soon in the next room. And my typewriter, which I donated to the Mexican, the National Museum of Mexican Art, is going to be on loan here. But I only used it to write poetry. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and I knew slower. that. Yeah, you go slower. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Do you, do you still write on typewriters? Do I still, I'm sorry? Do you still use typewriters? I still, I still, I only use typewriters to write my first drafts, yeah. Can you, can we hear an excerpt from the new book? Yes, Because totally. I think your writing, you know, is pretty futuristic, but unfortunately uh, you are telling uh, many parts of this novel are happening now. Yeah, well, and that's just a coincidence or something. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe this... Maybe it's not a coincidence because I think as writers we get into an intuitive state and yeah. we become visionary without even realizing it. Yeah, 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 Did definitely. Think- That's how, you know, I think that, yeah, if you leave yourself open, I think, to, to possibilities... Things appear in your writing that you have probably no control over. That end yeah, up. I would make up things, for example, in Caramelo, and later on I would find out it was true. And then the things that I thought were true, you know, I, I made up. That's interesting. You yeah. know, it's interesting that you bring that up sometimes because I was, I was wondering, I know you're a big Hans Christian Andersen fan. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, re- rereading, re- I remember you telling me uh, recently something about Hans Christian Andersen that I didn't know that he had problems with his teeth. Yeah, he had bad And uh, rereading uh, 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 my, uh, Mango Street, uh, I, there's this part that I, th- I think is the, the, the Edna's Ruthie uh, section, and Ruthie has, uh, has trouble with her teeth too. And I remembered Hans Christian Andersen. So I, 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 wa- I was wondering, I was like, I wonder if when Sandra, Sandra wrote this, she knew this about Hans Christian no, Andersen. Or you didn't. No, no. The thing it, about Hans Christian Andersen, and people don't realize the things we're influenced by, you know, because there's Borges in your work, there's all kinds of punk music, there's uh, Stalin cigarettes, you know, it's international. You're totally. so baroque. But with me, the reason why I like Hans Christian Andersen is because he was working class. He was a working class Danish writer. Mother was an alcoholic washerwoman. Father was a cobbler who died, and he was a child. And uh, his relatives would say, oh, he's so gifted. He's going to be great. He's going to be a poet. So they filled it in his head that he was greater than he really was. You know how mothers and grandmothers are. Well, uh, you know, they gave him a great sense of self-esteem. And he went off and made a writer for himself, but he had no education. And, you know, he was a total... Uh, country bumpkin and he eventually through the kindness of strangers got an education uh, late in life had to study with children because he was practically illiterate uh, became a playwright and eventually at towards you know when he was older wrote these little stories he called you know fairy tales that were not for children they were for everyone but what he did and what he uh, is extraordinary for and what he gives me animal encouragement for is that he revolutionized Danish literature. Danish literature before Hans Christian Andersen was very lofty and written by wealth, the wealthy class. Mm-hmm. He brought in something of his grandmother, women's 
oral tales, mm-hmm. uh, what they call superstition, but were folk tales. And he brought in a kind of oral storyteller way that his people who were literate would tell stories. And they say, well, now, we shall begin. And here the story goes, giddy up, you know, things like that that you say orally enter into his writing. Yeah. So that was revolutionary. Totally. And we as Chicano writers and as indigenous people who have our roots in the Americas before the world was round, we were here. Writing doesn't begin at 1490s. It begins with the great books of uh, indigenous civilizations, many of which were burned, some of which survived, and our tales that are many survived by be, not being uh, allowed to be burned because people speak them, yes. you know, many of those tales. That is like, you know, I think what makes our writing so distinctive, that it's so old, that it has a structure that's very different from European literature. But we've also inherited the English language. So we have our roots with the indigenous communities that have been here since before the world was round. We're, in, we're inspired by that, I am, by a pre-conquest literature, yes, as you are. Definitely. By Borges. Yeah. By Jean Rees, by Marguerite Duras, by uh, all of these writers from all around the world that influence us. That's why I'm always looking for writers in translation to spark a new, what, what can we do new with the English language? So show, show them what you can do. Definitely, yeah. And, you know, and to me, yeah, you're talking about like pre-conquest liter- literature and aesthetics, and that was those were really important to me in writing this book. I, I was really interested in the stories that existed in Texas before written literature. You know, what kind of stories existed in this land? I, I asked myself, and and I and the, the answer I always came to, like the the sto- all these stories that existed in South Texas were fantastic stories. You know, with personifications of the elements of you know, of the stars and everything. So to me, I was trying to access something like that and also trying to say something about the world today, at least at the time. And, and this was before anybody could have predicted, you know, like the border wall going international and stuff like that for some reason. But anyway, I'm going to write, read to you an excerpt from Tears of the Truffle Pig. And this is where our main character, Esteban Villacosa, crosses into Mexico for the first time. Halfway over the Rio Grande, the fabric of the bridge changed. The Mexican half was built out of cobblestones and was slightly more vandalized. Bellacosa stopped at the bolted plaque commemorating the spot as the official divider of the two countries and looked through the 10-foot chain-link fence along the, along the railing down at the river. He knew the Rio Grande naturally flowed eastward toward the gulf, but Bellacosa swore it was running the opposite way. He watched as two children climbed the railing as high as his waist level to take a look. They were both pointing and smiling with the look of wonder Bellacosa hadn't seen in a child in so long that the sight nearly touched him until he noticed the source of their amazement. It wasn't the water, but the two border walls, one built along the south side of the Rio Grande, the other along the north, And like two scheming sentinels, they escorted the river, their dying queen, as far as the eye could see into the horizon. The look of pleasure on the children's faces made his blood harden like lava in his veins. Suddenly, against the northern border wall, a few hundred yards away, a howling tall flame sprung to life. The children clapped. Bellacosa knew it was a controlled fire for the great cane, which threatened the structural integrity of the border walls, and he continued his walk. Hmm. 
Thank you. What, what does it mean to be an American writer? What I saw it, that on the wall. What does it mean to be an yeah, American writer? Here at the museum. What does it mean for you? To what be? does it mean to me? To me, it means to be aware of as many uh, schools of literature as possible. And not just like writers from New York and not just writers from Los Angeles. To me, it's, and not just the canonical 20th century writers, the canonical 19th century writers, but also all these pockets of literature that existed throughout the 20th century and the, throughout now even. And to be aware of uh, as many uh, aesthetics as possible and to ask myself how it relates to me uh, and how it relates to the world around me and uh, try to be as open as possible to all these influences and to see what they, what, what they do through me. Do you, you have a responsibility? Do you feel like you, know, you have a responsibility? Because I know I feel like I have. I'm sure I bet. I, I'm responsible to my mother and father's spirit, their memory, uh, to honor them to uh, the community that we represent, to South Texas, to Chicago, to the working class, to women, to Mexicans, you know, just the immigrants. It goes on and on and on. I I don't know if you feel that kind of weight. I do. I do. You know, the book, the book is dedicated. I dedicated the book for all the disappeared at the time. at the time when I was wrote, when I wrote this, there was a lot of tragedies going on that, unfortunately, we have forgotten now because of all the other tragedies that have come since then. And uh, I was really, really... To me, it's impossible to be an artist from Texas and to not take into consideration the femicide that has happened in Ciudad Juarez for the last 20 years, maybe even longer than that. And to me, I cannot ignore that in my work. And uh, and it was and I had and I've been my family. All my family lives along the border in the in Reynosa on the other side. And their very their everyday lives have been very much affected by everything going on in the border. That to me, it was very important to represent something that I could to my abilities to all these names and people who disappear and their stories disappeared. To to me, I felt a huge responsibility to the disappeared stories of all these people and to try to access some of it through silence and through my work as well. That's pretty heavy. That's beautiful. Thank you. I'm glad I asked that question because that's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. And I think that um, I think that's what makes your writing so extraordinary because you do uh, you are aware of what's going on. Uh, you, are you reading a lot of other writers? You look at the news. Or all this information sounds like fantasy, but all you have to do is just uh, go online and read what's happening in Mexico. What news doesn't reach here? Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. And to me, and I can't ignore that. I can't ignore, especially uh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, in the uh, in Austin, Texas, where I'm from, uh, and in South Texas, I never met a lot of writers of my generation. You know, and I asked myself why. Like a lot of fic- uh, I don't know a lot of fiction writers. Uh, I know a lot of poets, and so because of, especially because of that, uh, I felt a huge responsibility as to the kind of stories that I'm telling. Otherwise, 
Why am I writing? Why, like you say, like why, why be like that for ten years? Why close yourself you know? in, in your house, your apartment for ten years when you could go out and watch TV? Yeah, exactly. Right? Why torment yourself? You know, why to write a story? You know. Well, I, I want to uh, thank you for picking up that mantle of representing all the people we love. I think one thing that my writing has taught me, and that's a life lesson, is that whatever we do with love on behalf of those we love. Without a personal agenda, siempre sale bonito. It always turns out well. And I'm so uh, honored uh, to be associated with you, to be the grandmother of your book in uh, any way. The honor, you know, yeah, I am honored. so Sandra. grateful. And, you know, this is the thing that happened when I left Chicago. I left because it was too difficult for me to live here and to live in the neighborhoods I could afford as a single woman, to live away from my father's roof and to deal with the traffic and the despair I felt, you know, the energy uh, in Chicago. So I went and took a job where was cheap, where I could live somewhere that was cheap, low overhead for one year. I'm going to live in San Antonio, and it wound up to be 25. And, you know, but then my roots dried up, and I tumbleweeded south to Mexico. And I said, oh, I'm not coming back to Texas here. You know, they treat me too badly. I'm not coming back. And now I go back like four times a year, and I'm seeing, yeah, my roots dried up, because that was my destino, but I'm seeing the harvest of seeds I planted. So you, you make me very proud. I'm so oh, honored to know you. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. You know, I feel... Uh, I feel uh, I feel very grateful and privileged that your influence in my life uh, goes way beyond your body of work, well, which you know, is a, so a important. Ma- there's so many good writers coming up now, from, especially in California, Arizona, South Texas, West Texas. Cristina Granados writes fiction. And if you want to meet them, I invite you to apply or to come and donate a seminar to my workshop, Macondo, which I'm no longer running, but I, I guess teach. Definitely. So, I would love any to. Writers out there who want to apply, it's not a Latino exclusive organization. We work with writers who are activists, writers who believe in serving the underserved. Definitely. I think it's time for us to end. I want to thank the museum for having us here and putting us together. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for coming out as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation between writers Viet Thanh Nguyen, Kao Kalia Yang, and Vu Tran, who will discuss their contributions to the anthology The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.